Welcome to TAD Talks, the source for information, news, and best practices for career and workforce professionals. Taking the mystery out of career development for you and your customers. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of TAD Talks. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of TAD Talks. This is Trusted Dorsey, president of TAD Grants, and I am coming at you live. Not really live because it's a recorded podcast, but I am here in Sacramento, California, beautiful Northern California. Always with me today is my partner in crime, Aaron Lesson, coming to us from the frozen tundra. How are you today, sir? Good, Tressa. It's nice to to see you. I know people on this podcast are like, see ya. Well, I am in Battle Creek, Michigan, and you know, you're just out here visiting, so you know how pretty it was, and we still are holding on to those leaves that have changed colors. It's just really been a beautiful fall that way, but I can tell you also, you got the great weather because we're switching, and the leaves are falling, and all that prettiness is now looking like a lot of work in my yard. It is a nice place to live, and fall is fantastic, but ultimately, man. Yeah, I well, but I do feel like it's kind of a cool excuse to bust out the old John Deere. When we were out there, I was definitely like, let me hop on that thing. It like looked like so much fun. I'm sure you don't feel that way, but no, it, it was beautiful out there, and it was a great time. It was good to see the family and spend some time together, and I was just grateful that it wasn't snowing or ice cold because, you know, I'm being from California, I can't handle that, so. Oh, no, right, I know. You guys are kind of soft, but you're just upset because you didn't. I didn't let you ride the John Deere. So basically, yeah, that's basically it. I, I, I had visions of too fast, too furious, you know, drifting across the backyard. <laughs> I vision of fishing out of the pond. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, enough of all that. I mean, I know people love to hear all about our escapades with John Deere tractors because that's really why they tune in. But we have a pretty awesome episode coming up and I'm really excited to have um, our guest on today. And that is Mr. Larry Robin of Robin and Associates. And Larry, how are are you today, sir? I'm doing great. I'm also in California where the weather is beautiful. I'm in uh, Oakland, California. So, and I'm really thrilled to be on the podcast with you folks. I've followed the work of uh, TAD Grants for many years, and I have a great deal of respect for the way you folks work and your knowledge and your commitment to the work. So thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. And thank you yeah. for the kind words. I, Aaron and I actually talk about you quite a bit because, you know, when we run the conference circuit, you're always, you're always there with us. Now, Larry, and I'm going to, I'm going to kind of lead into this because I have to know you, you're pretty much a rookie in workforce. I mean, you've only been here for a few years yourself. That's clearly sarcasm because I, I'm looking here and 45 years in this profession. I mean, this is a true career for you. So how did you get into workforce and why did you, why do you think you were drawn to it? Well, the truth is that it's more than 45 years, but if I put out many years in it, nobody would hire me to do youth work. So I don't, <laughs> uh, I cut it off at 45 years. And um, <laughs> like the overwhelming majority of people in workforce development, even though we preach career planning every day to our customers, very, very few people in workforce development are in their current jobs because they followed a well-constructed career path. I mean, when I give keynote speeches and conferences, I often say to people, okay, we don't have any customers in the room. Raise your hand if you're in your current job in workforce development because you followed a well-crafted career plan. And then I give the person who introduced 
takes me a sealed envelope and asks them to open it up and read it. And they open it up and read it. And what it says is less than 10% of the people in this room will raise their hand to this question. And I've yeah. done this with thousands of people and it's never wrong. So the reality is like many things in life, it's easier to tell other people to do it than to do it yourself. That's just a lesson, <laughs> lesson right there. You the sound reason, like you talk to my reason, sister, Larry. Hold on a second. Yeah, my sister's always, <laughs> who, who I love, by the way, and I adore because she's just an amazing person. Talk about somebody who can tell you exactly what you should be doing. She's amazing. I mean, she, she's been trying to tell me what to do my whole life, but I'm so oppositionally defined. I've never listened. I probably should have. I might have turned out better. But yeah, it's the same thing, you know, it, you know, and it's so great. I'm so glad you led with that, actually. Aaron and I say that exact same thing, and I think people laugh, but... I don't know if it's really all that funny. You know what I mean? Like when you really, when it really boils yeah. down to it. So, so you ended up kind of doing the same thing probably most of us did, right? Which is you landed here. But, How did you, what, what were you doing before workforce? Well, the reality for me is that I was born into workforce development. And this is how that happened. Grandfather, who came to this country from Poland, fleeing the early vestiges of the rise of Nazism in Europe, came to this country, not speaking any English, without a left hand, very short stature, and with a very Jewish-sounding name. Our name at that time was Rabinowitz. And he faced incredible discrimination in employment. And even though he'd been a master tailor in Poland and owned his own tailoring business, he could not get a job in the sweatshops of Chicago. And he had a brutally long job search. He was very mission-driven, and he always did things, uh, even before this, for, for the public good. But he made a decision that when he opened his own business, and he was definitely an entrepreneur and a business person, that whatever that business was, he was only going to hire the people that nobody else would hire. By the time I was born in Chicago, they were running Robin's Restaurant, my dad and my grandfather. And in downtown Chicago, it was a very big restaurant, it had between 70 and 100 employees at any given time. And when you came to apply for a job at Robin's Restaurant, the thing that got you hired was that you had the most multiple, the most severe barriers to employment, and nobody else would hire you. So he would sit people down in the front booth and say, tell me your story. People would tell them this story. And then at the end of the story, he would say, well, I'm glad you've had a very good life, but you can get a job anywhere. We only hire people with really serious problems. Do you have any really serious problems? And at that point, people would say, well, I was in prison for 25 years, or uh, I'm an alcoholic, or I talk to voices, or um, I'm gay, or I'm a runaway youth, or uh, have this disability. And then he would hire them on the spot. So if you grow up in a family-owned business, the motto of the family-owned business is if you're old enough to walk, you're old enough to work. I like that. Six, seven, or eight. I was bussing tables. I was cleaning things. I was in the restaurant. And I was surrounded by all these people with multiple and severe barriers to employment. And watching my dad and my grandfather teach them how to become really good employees and how to be successful in their life. And they were some of the best employers I've ever known. In 1946, they were the first business, I think, in the country, and and I've worked in the private sector, and I've never heard anybody do this sooner, that instituted profit sharing. Every employee went home with a bag of groceries on Friday. Once every quarter, the restaurant opened on Sunday, and my family served the employees and their families. I saw people go from low employment motivation, no skill, no work history, lots of challenges to becoming very, very good employees. And that was kind of like my orientation into 
what workforce development was about. And then when I was a junior in high school, I found out about, I had not had a community center in our neighborhood and somebody came from a program that was in the poorest part of Chicago near the famous Cabrini Green housing project, which at that time was America's most violent housing project. And it was a workforce and education program. And I had worked with lots of people that were just like the people coming to that program. And I said to the guy, you know, I'd like to volunteer in your program. And he said, great. And so as a junior in high school, I was volunteering in a program that primarily served second, third, and fourth generation youth and adult gang members coming out of the correction system. And that was my first actual paid job um, in workforce development. And I was hooked. So I've done things around workforce development, but workforce development has kind of always been the core of it. And our family restaurant was so successful that largely the secret sauce was how we treated our employees. The food was good, but the way we treated people was incredible that eventually some other restaurants who weren't our competitors came and said to my dad and my grandfather, you know, we'd like to hire you to consult with our restaurant. We're not competitors of yours and how we can increase our profit. They weren't interested in that. By that time, I was in my early 20s and they said, but Larry could do it. That's when I started consulting in the private sector. And fast forward to today, I spend about 70% or so of my time working with all kinds of workforce development organizations. When I set up my workforce development practice, I decided I did not want to be a funding source population or program design specialist. So I wanted to learn it all. And as new things emerge in workforce development, like the growth in programs that serve people with autism or programs serving people with homelessness, I do a deep dive and I learn that. And then the other 30% of my time is spent as a private sector consultant, which helps to inform a great deal of my workforce development. So that is long story short, or maybe it's not so short, that's kind of how I got into workforce development. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, actually. I would have bet myself and Tressa and, and many of those that you work with would never get that or guess that story. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean, especially Chicago's right in uh, my backyard. And, you know, there's so many elements of that that are really fascinating to me personally. What's fascinating about it is how that desire was cultivated in that setting in Chicago. And I hear you when you say when you work about knowing programs and systems and populations that are being served and you dive into them. I see that. I see that in your listings of the work for your business. It's very impressive. I, I, I have to tell you that just nothing but respect for that, that foundation and really your heartfelt passion to serve people, especially those in specialty populations. I'm not saying that, you know, just build you up in any way or, or promote you. But I can tell you, and those who listen to this podcast, we always joke, there's about four people, my mom, Tressa's sister, and we bribe a couple of our friends to listen. But but ultimately, those who listen, there's not many people, Larry, who are going to be able to ever share that type of background and say, that's my foundation. And it's from that, you know, that you've built your half a century, really, of work in this field, which also not many people can claim. So thank Thank you. I mean, honestly, thank you. If you ever get a chance and you listen to this to see Larry or, or bring him in, do it because I am sure the vast amount of knowledge that he possesses and the experience are unlike really anything else that you can bring in to have work with your folks. So 
Thank you for that. And now I'm going to ask you a question, Larry, based really on kind of what's going on right now. At our centers, they're they're just bursting at the seams with, I think I heard last night in our presidential debate that there's about, I think, roughly 8 million people filed for unemployment. And so at one point during the pandemic, we were up at 15 to 18 million. But honestly, we know that those people have to get back in into work. And as things keep settling themselves out in our fluid situation, with our one-stop centers really going to be taxed with people coming in, being busy, what do you think that those centers need to reconsider about how they're going to do business in order to really be of use and assistance to these job seekers as they try to transition back into work? What are some of the key elements that you think that our centers can incorporate to be successful during this transition time? Well, uh, thank you, first of all, for the very kind words uh, about my work. I'm honored and I really do appreciate them quite a bit coming from you folks who have also put so much sweat, equity, passion, commitment uh, into this work and made so many major contributions. We have some clients in common and they they always talk about the excellent work that you and uh, Tressa do. So here's what I think. You know, workforce development organizations generally do not change very quickly. And I think some of that is their attachment to government. I sometimes say that in a race between government and a glacier, a glacier would win. (laughs) Yes, yes. And what we're faced with now is a completely new reality that's not going to go away for the near future. And I see programs taking one of two roads in dealing with this, especially in the volume of customers. There's the tweakers. The people who try and modify what they're already doing and kind of make these little adjustments to be able to serve more people, they're never going to make it because the tsunami of dislocated workers that is facing us is just starting. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce predicts that 40% of small businesses, which employ most of the people in America, will not be reopening after the pandemic. This is not going to end. The other programs, which are tend to be more creative, more nimble, more ready to abandon old ways of thinking, they look at this as an opportunity to completely reinvent the work. So let's imagine our workforce organization was starting now and we needed incredibly high capacity. Forget about the old way of working. It was set for a low customer, high staffing ratio. And now we have the exact opposite. We have a customer load that's looking like Mount Everest and we have staffing that's looking like a grain of sand on the beach. So you have to completely reinvent the way you're thinking. And I think from my way of thinking, there's four areas to look at as we think about reinventing our work. One is, how do we make the work more efficient at the frontline staff level? What do people need to change about the way they work on a day-to-day basis with their customers to be able to have the capacity to serve more people? Saving time is of paramount importance in this work. The second thing is, how do we get other people to help us? We will never have enough paid staff to be able to do this work. With the exception of very few organizations, most workforce organizations have never looked to the idea of bringing on volunteers, of bringing on people in internships, of bringing on people from the senior uh, programs who can be funded to work in your program. We're going to need to have non-salaried staff 
to do a lot of this work. And it does mean that we have to make sure that those people are not replacing salaried staff or the salaried staff are not going to be supportive of this. I think the third area is we need to look at the way we operate, the systems, processes, methodology, to look at what we can cut out. So a good example of this is the workforce development world is addicted to meetings. Meetings are the crack cocaine of workforce development. And the difference in the amount of meetings in workforce development programs and in my private sector clients is dramatic. So that's just one example in that. And I also think that we need to figure out how to get people hired in less time to move them out of the program faster. And I think governing all of this way of thinking is a concept in the private sector that becomes very helpful in this thinking and that we can transform to work in workforce development. And that concept is called lean thinking. Lean like a piece of meat, L-E-A-N. Lean started in the automobile industry in Japan in the 70s and 80s. And it was a, a philosophy, a way of working. And if you Google it, you'll see that it's much, much bigger than anything I can get into today. But when I worked in the private sector, I was national director of training for a Fortune 500 manufacturing company called Harnischfeger, based in Milwaukee, which made earth-moving equipment. And we went through the lean process. And it stripped an incredible amount of time wasting at all levels of our organization. I had a lean coach. And by the time he was done with me, I was saving nine and a half hours a week of time. I literally got like an extra day a week. So applying lean principles to all these elements that I'm talking about will be incredibly helpful for people. And you may ask some of the private sector clients on your board, what processes they've used to become more efficient, to have more capacity, and if any of them have done lean as well. And that will help you You'll have to transform it to work for your organization, but it will help. I just want to give you kind of a classic example, and then we can move on to some, uh, to some other questions in this. There are things we do at the frontline staff level that are incredibly time-wasting. So when I job shadow people at the frontline staff level, one thing I see is that customers bring us all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. And what staff are not doing is they're often not distinguishing between a barrier to employment and a barrier to a happy life. And they're working on every problem the person brings to them instead of figuring out, is this problem, in fact, a barrier to employment? So a single parent comes to you with five kids and they're having problems with the kids. You have to distinguish, are these problems with the kids getting in the way of job search, job retention, motivation? Or am I faced with a single parent who's dealing with the incredibly difficult task of raising five kids? If that's the case, if it's a barrier to a happy life, I'm going to show some, a lot of empathy. I'm going to give a lot of support. I may recommend them to a parenting resource if I can, but I'm not going to take a lot of time with it because it's not a barrier to employment. If those kids are getting in trouble with the police and the parents having to go down to the police station and do all kinds of disciplinary stuff, if they're getting in trouble at school, then it becomes a barrier to employment. And that's my work. Lean thinking and the streamlining we have to do goes all the way up from the one-on-one -on -one work all the way into the pathway and the program design work that we do in our organization. We need to reinvent, not tweak, and think that high capacity with quality services is the goal. So that's how I see it kind of as an, from an overview perspective.
Yeah, that's that's really great. So first of all, let me tell you, when uh, when I was a technical assistance coach uh, for a really long time, I had the opportunity to really get involved and understand the lean process and the Six Sigma and Green Belt, Black Belt, all those things. And I loved it. And I loved it because the level of efficiency that it created and, and the amount of time it saved turned into more revenue, right? And that's what we were hoping for. It made people able here in the States able to compete globally because they could create a higher quality product in less amount of time, meaning they can deliver faster and they can, you know, create more revenue from that. And, and I think that all of those things are wonderful. And from my perspective, one of the things that I've always found as far as like why workforce probably doesn't work as, as good as it could is because we do not operate our centers or our in general, some folks do. But in general, we don't necessarily operate it like a business, a business that generates revenue in order to survive. And so this idea of lean while we may train it, we have ITAs that probably train our clients on it. We never incorporate these kinds of trainings. And, and a lot of folks um, up until probably, you know, recently are, were, were even hesitant to spend the money on staff training, which kind of leads me to a capacity issue. And, and I think, a, you know, a skills level issue of how do you deal with the flood that's getting ready to come? How do you prepare your staff? And because we're, you know, we're all professional development trainer here, trainers here. So of course, we're going to touch on this topic. But you look at what, what, in your opinion, do the staff need right now in order to be more efficient, to serve more people without jeopardizing the quality of the service? Because what I'm afraid of, and then I'm going to let you answer this, but what I'm afraid of is this sense that we're going to be so reactive and it's going to be just get them through, get them, get, get them through, get them through, get them through, because we're trying to just, you know, like, you know, cattle call like a clearinghouse versus giving people that individual opportunity to identify those things that you were talking about, like what's an actual barrier to employment versus what's an actual barrier to a happy life, which I love, by the way. So what do you think if you had two things right now, if there was any directors out there listening to this, what are two things that you think staff absolutely need right now in order to kind of face the onslaught of what's coming? One of the things my lean coach said, and he said this many times, is when workforce people tend to think about efficiency, they often think about where do we make that big cut? How do we save this huge chunk of hours and figure out how to reposition that? If you're really thinking lean, you think wasted seconds leads to wasted minutes, lead to wasted hours, lead to wasted days, lead to wasted weeks, lead to wasted months, lead to wasted years. You are looking to eliminate seconds of efficiency in a process. So from a director perspective, there's a couple things that I would say that you need to do. Number one, you need to empower your staff and make them feel comfortable about talking to you about where they think time is being wasted and where they think that what they're being asked to do is not paying off in efficiency. I'll give you a great example of this. The workforce organization with 20 staffs and doing about 200 assessments a month. And these were very hard to employ people, multiple barriers to employment, almost no work history, very severe kind of um, issues. And what had been embedded in their assessment, a set of questions from time immemorial, was the question, where do you see yourself in five years? Well, when I started working with that program and I started interviewing staff, I said, how much useful information do you get from asking these people, where do you see yourself in five years? And in the focus groups I did, people said, we get nothing. 
These people are crisis oriented. They're wondering around where their next meal is going to come from. They're homeless. They're worried where they're going to sleep that night. But we push on it because we have to put information into the case notes about how they answered that question. So somebody says, no, we go, well, maybe you, you, you know, you don't think you do, but you really do. And then they start getting into more and more of a conversation. And on average, they spend about three minutes on that question with these customers. And I started looking at it and I started calculating it. And collectively in one year, these 20 staff people asking that question and spending three minutes on it, they wasted two months and three weeks of time asking a question that had no payoff to the end result. But what happens in a lot of workforce programs is that they're tradition-bound, and staff will see things that don't make sense to them and are time wasters. But bringing that up to your boss, who's been in that agency longer than you have, is very often seen as threatening and not your role. So a key issue is that management has to empower frontline staff to become as efficient as possible and to start asking those hard questions. One of my private sector coaches, uh, mentors, Peter Drucker, who was one of the most brilliant private sector consultants ever on the planet, Peter had many brilliant things. And one of his things, which I think bears a lot on what you're asking here, Tressa, one of his things was tradition without current justification is the enemy of progress. So we have to start rethinking everything we do and look at the question of, are we doing this because it's the way we've always done it, or are we doing it because it contributes to a high-capacity model? The second thing I would say to the directors in, in this situation is, look at how many steps any process takes, and your goal should be to eliminate as many steps in that process as possible. So I worked with the workforce organization. I'm often called in to help them improve their work with private sector businesses since I spend you know, a third of my time in that world. And they weren't getting much take up on their OJT. The turnaround on the on-job training was from the time they got the employer to say that they bought in to the time that they actually got the employer, the OJT contract was 10 to 12 business days. 10 to 12 business days because they had all wow. these layers of approval and mm-hmm. it wasn't high priority and whatnot. And we have to weigh at that. Why do you need five sig- management signatures on this? Why is this sitting in somebody's to-do box and not seen as a red flag, high priority item that is the first thing of the day you get to when it comes to you? And we were able to turn around what was a 10 to 12 day OJT contract turnaround to 48 hours and continue to work on it to try and get it even faster. OJT usage went up 90% because unlike workforce programs, government and nonprofit and academia, one of the big cultural disconnects in that thinking, and you know this from your private sector work, Tressa and Aaron, is that in the private sector, we are always thinking time is money. Time is not a cultural value in workforce. I don't know of workforce program in the country, and I don't know of all of them. Maybe you know of one. Where if I put in a job lead at 9 o'clock in the morning, they would be able to get me somebody to interview within two hours or less. That's the private sector temp standard. And we lose a lot of work to those temp agencies and those recruitment firms who are basically often referring the same people we serve, but they are faster. Because we have never made speed uh, delivery an element in our services. And now we have to think speed. Government does not think speed. 
academia does not think speed. One of the reasons so many of my big corporate private sector clients are starting their own education programs is that when they go to the university or community college system saying, we need this class set up, it takes too long. It's more efficient for them to do it on their own. Microsoft built a $450 million training campus and school in Menlo Park, California. They're surrounded by institutions of higher education. And when I was there to give a keynote speech, I asked them, why'd you build this? And they said, because all the schools are too slow. We'll be five products down the road by the time they get us what we need. So I think the other way the directors have to think is that speed without sacrificing quality, and that's the juggling act. And I really like what you said, Tressa, about we don't want to become the spin them out revolving door. We have to make sure that we're taking customer satisfaction surveys, that we're analyzing who drops out of our program, that we're doing all kinds of interviewing of customers to maintain high quality. But it can be done. You know, Toyota was not a very competitive car manufacturer with when it first instituted lean. And when it instituted lean and within a year or so, it had it fully integrated into their systems. They were kicking the butt of every other car manufacturer in the world. And they were producing 40% more cars, but the car defect rate was actually going down. And the reason was that they empowered frontline workers to do something that had never been done in the auto industry, which was that every workstation was a cord people could pull if they found a defect coming through on the assembly line and they pulled that cord, the assembly line stopped. That had always been something you had to go to management to get to do. But by the time you go to management, it gets the four person down to the shop floor, 300 cars might have gone out with that defect. So it is possible to increase efficiency and to speed up and maintain quality, but you have to embrace both things. So thank you uh, for the question. Yeah, that's fantastic. I would think that regardless of the industry, and I know you're coming at it from private sector, but those who listen to this, so applicable to really have the courage, I think, when I hear you talk about those things, the courage to say, all right, we need to empower the frontline staff because those are the individuals really that, you know, the question was, how are we going to get people through? How are we going to do this? And often I remember working in a one stop and, and we probably, I'll just be honest, didn't do a very a good job of bringing in the frontline staff to help make decisions on processes and programming. And it was one of those things, maybe an oversight, maybe we didn't know, but ultimately the value of that frontline to say, we know, just like the example of the question, what a wasted question, right? We often, uh, Tress and I often talk about this in workforce. You know, it's one of the helping skills that we talk about for frontline staff. It goes with asking questions. A lot of times we're just grabbing a sheet that's full of these questions that have are been around forever. No one's really even examined them. And you're just going down, checking the boxes, asking these questions that really have no meaning to really the service that particular person needs. And so you know, I hope that those who listen to this can hear, you know, even at a, at a bigger level, I always think of the frontline staff going, well, if my boss would listen to this and maybe they would allow me to have an opinion, but I, we always pair that back because you can only control what you can control. And so for individuals who listen to this, I think there's a certain measure of what we can do individually to examine our own actions and behaviors, especially as we go about our days to say, well, what is producing the results that I need to have successful days. And it's not ideal, but to even take the idea of lean and to 
put it in the mirror of our own daily existence. I know right away, Larry, I'll admit to you, I'm like, yep. I could do that even myself to say, all right, how am I looking at my days? How am I looking at the work I'm doing? And where can I become more efficient? Even if it's in those seconds, as you say, because those seconds add up to minutes, to hours, to days. So I have a fifth question here. We, we had some patterned out, but I'm going to vary just a little bit. And I think you're the perfect person to ask this. Because the the world of workforce, trying to get into workforce is pretty much a, um, a roll of the dice, right? Where you said that, you know, you had 10% of the people who would be able to answer that initial question. When we go around and we've trained thousands, you know, and we ask the question, did you purposefully choose to be in workforce, you know, when we're working with an organization? And I can tell you hands down when we ask the question or, and it's like, I would say maybe maybe 5%, 1%, maybe who actually purposefully, and I'm being generous there, I would say even less purposefully chose a position, a career in our industry. And that is for a lot of reasons. And that also is another podcast and a whole different day. But for people who might be interested in a career helping others in, in our industry and in workforce, why don't you tell us why you think it's a career field, a career pathway that individuals should be interested in getting into? Well, I just want to comment on something you said in in relationship to this. I think it's I think it's absolutely absurd that all the money spent on career assessment technology, I have yet to see the career assessment technology that matches people with potential careers that has workforce development professional as one of the things that it comes up with. Exactly. So we're spending a fortune on these on these systems that will never match people to work in our field. I mean, it might come to counselor, but that's so broad. Just as a footnote to your to your comment. So there's a couple aspects to to what you what you are saying. I think that one of the things that you find that people become passionate about if they didn't even start with that passion, but in workforce development is understanding how much more this work is about than getting people jobs. Getting people jobs is the absolute tip of the iceberg. And we don't always serve everybody in poverty, but if you help people in poverty get jobs, the research shows that people in poverty with the same demographic profile as somebody who's not in poverty, Poverty will shorten their life by 10 or 20 years. So they will have less access to good health care, good nutrition, more likely to live in a violent community, more likely to be exposed to toxic substances. So you're expanding people's lifespan when you help them get into employment. Whether it's virtual as it is now or whether it's on site, you are helping people become part of a workplace family. And I know that some points in my career, I've gotten more support from my workplace family in certain crises than I've got from relatives. That whole workplace family support system is incredibly valuable and powerful. You can be helping people, especially adults or people with children, become transformative role models for their children and for other people in their community. You know, I work a lot in communities of poverty and communities that have a lot of gangs in them. When I talk to youth that break away from that gang and decide to get involved in an employment program and move on, very often it's I'm talking about this person on the corner who they saw go to work every day with their carpenter's toolbox, saw them get a better car, 
started talking to them. And that role model, planting that role model inside of that community is transformative to the community. It's often frustrating to me that the funding sources check off the box about what our impact is on one individual. It's never on one individual. It's never on one individual. It's on their friends, their family, and their community. So if you're looking to make major impact on people's lives, if you're looking literally to change the landscape of the community, this work can do it in ways that a lot of other things can't. And if you help people find a way into something that connects with the thing they love to do and move from doing a job to move from doing something that's intrinsic to your values and what really makes you happy, that can turn work from a four-letter word to a celebration. Those are some of the reasons why I think people should go into this work. On the other side of that, I think what some people think is, oh, I love to work with people. I'm going to do workforce development, you know? And what they lose is, and what they need to find out when they interview workforce development professionals is, I was working with one agency, and because of the funding sources they work with, 70% of staff time is spent on data entry. That's obscene, but it's a huge part of what's required of us now. So if you got into work, this work to work with people, but you don't realize how much data you're going to have to be inputting, that's going to be an issue for you. If you don't realize the instability of our funding and that most programs operate on annual cycles, and that has to be factored in. If you don't think about the stress of this work, and many people end up leaving it because they can't manage the stress. They bring so much of it home with them. They can't set the right boundaries. They don't take care of their own uh, physical, mental, and emotional health. The burnout rate is pretty high. But the rewards are unbelievable. Larry, first of all, let me let me just thank you for that insight because Aaron and I both feel the exact same way that what we're able to do in workforce development is change the trajectory for generations of some. And that's a pretty big responsibility. But like you said, there's also a lot of impact there. And and I do think that one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is, you know, the fact that we give, you know, very much similar to what you said is, you know, we give people the ONET, but we're not even on ONET. Like there's there's a high school person right now who might think, you know, I want to help people. I want people around me to get jobs because of their own experience. And they're sitting there talking to somebody, taking assessments about what do they want to be you know, what color is your parachute or whatever it is they're doing in schools these days, you know, and, and it never comes up that this is a way to make that kind of impact. I, you know, I hope that's going to change because of the pandemic and how up out front we are now um, because of this. But sticking with that, and I want to kind of wrap this up because I think we're almost over time. I'm going to ask you one last question because I do think that this is really going to be the question on a lot of people's minds. So we talked about what do staff need to create the space to manage their caseloads and and get people through the system without sacrificing quality of service. But the, the last question I have is one thing that we could do something like maybe it's not simple, but just one thing that that most workforce uh, centers are are capable of doing right now that could get people into their their career pathways or or their jobs right now, like to limit the time, right? Limit the time that they're in the program. 
Because I think a lot of people are going to balk and say, well, what are you asking us to either to take the time or push them through? Which is it? And I feel like there's got to be a gray area where we can do both. But we're going to, you know, we're talking about rapid reemployment right now, right? So how do you get somebody who was the bartender, the cashier in the hotel industry, somebody who's who's been probably most impacted by what's gone on, right? Or that business owner that lost their business. How do you take them, get them into the program and get them placed in, in the quickest amount of time possible without obviously the quality sacrifice? But what is that one thing? I mean, it, it, we know about the efficiency. We've talked about how we can make it efficient, but it does it come down to the career planning? Does it come down to the assessment? Does it come down to business services? Like what program component is going to, is going to be the mechanism for doing that in a quick manner, do you think? So I'm glad you asked me such easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you just if solve everybody's that, problems, Larry? That would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, if I if I knew that if I knew this was going to take so much brain power, I might have said twice about doing it. Um, <laughs> well, we have I, to trick everybody actually, into doing it eventually. <laughs> but actually, I do have I do have an answer to that um, question. When I lived in the Midwest, um, my firm had a contract to do work with auto workers getting laid off in five states, massive amounts of layoffs. I knew we didn't have the staff to do it. I started thinking about working differently. And I brought that model when I moved to Oakland and I ran, I took a job here as I was setting up my consulting and training practice on the West Coast, managing the city of Oakland's dislocated worker program. And in three and a half years, we served 14,000 dislocated workers with a staff of 25 and won a a Department of Labor National Association, the County Award for our high reemployment number. And now I'm going to give you the secret sauce to that. But what I'm going to say really threatens the traditional way of working in workforce development and some of the traditional thinking about that. So in my private sector work, one of my specialties is helping businesses improve their hiring process. And part of that is that I am in interviews, either before the pandemic on site or virtually, watching them interview, watching them make the hiring decision. I'm actually behind the scenes, kind of inside their brain as they're looking at candidates and sorting this through. I've been the part of over 10,000 hiring decisions in my career, okay? And the thing that workforce is missing about hiring in a major way is that we focus on the human capital side of hiring, help people get more skills, help people get more education, as if that will be the trigger that will get them uh, get employers to hire them. We spend almost no time, with the exception of very few programs, on helping them build their social capital and helping them understand the importance of getting to know people who can refer you to an employer. And this is not people on Facebook or LinkedIn that you barely know, but people that will really refer you to an employer. Because when an employer gets a referral from a trusted source, that changes the whole dynamic about who they think about hiring. So one of the things I've watched very closely, how has COVID changed the hiring decision? So you wouldn't think of it in this way unless you were kind of in my shoes watching this. But the amount of job seekers who now lie or commit gross exaggeration in the hiring process has skyrocketed. And the reason it's skyrocketed, not because people are bad people, it's because they're desperate. And they've been in job search since March and they've got food to feed and they don't want to end up homeless. So they start stretching what they did or they claim a degree that they didn't have. Hirestart and Chexter, two of the background companies, are estimating that 70% of job seekers are now committing gross exaggeration or lying in the hiring process. If I get a referral from somebody I trust, 
the chances of me getting an honest candidate are much, much greater. The other thing that the referral does is it tells me that there could be culture match, which is the hardest thing to hire for, making sure that person will fit into my business. The other thing I get is that person's probably going to work harder than my average new hire because there's a relationship to a third party on the line. And they don't want me complaining to the person that referred them and saying, why would you refer me this loser? They're coming late all the time. What I'm saying is that programs have to embed and change their model to make building social capital, not just something where we tell people to go network. We need to forge networks in our program. And my strategy for doing that is instead of doing 100% of one-on-one, that we mix it up. We leave one-on-one for issues that are unique to that individual. But what happens is staff repeat the same conversation over and over with many people. So in a week, a staff person may have 10 conversations with somebody who's facing age discrimination because they got laid off at 65 and they're worried about how that's going to impact them. So they have the same conversation. In my model, the dominant service delivery model are what I call mini groups. Mini groups are working with customers in groups of three to 10, either virtually or eventually on site, where we bring people together either for a one-shot deal on one topic or for an ongoing series if they share a demographic. So you could do uh, you could do a series of mini groups for people with disabilities. You could do it for people in reentry. You could do it for single parents, all people who share a unique kind of barrier to employment. You could do it around career focus. You could have a mini group series for people who are thinking of jobs in construction or people who are thinking of jobs in data processing. If we shift our mentality from thinking that one-on-one is the only way to work, what happens, and the reason our dislocated worker program had such outrageously high placement numbers, the highest of any federally funded dislocated worker program at that time was not because we were so good at teaching people how to job search. It was because when we ran the mini group for single parents trying to balance childcare and job search, people met each other in that mini group. And then when one of them got a job, and the employer was looking to hire somebody else, they reached back into the program and said, can you let so-and-so know that the employer is looking for a truck driver? And the person who got hired was the accountant. So we created social capital by weaving people together in all these creative and innovative kinds of groups. And like I say, some were ongoing, some were one-shot deals. And I know when workforce staff hear this, they're going to think like the character Linus in a peanut cartoon who clutches a security blanket. Like Larry's saying, no more one-on-one. But I'm not saying I'm saying one-on-one is justified when there's a very confidential or a very unique situation where one-on-one is the best. Group work is where you will see soft skills. It will where people will learn cross-cultural communication. It's where you will see teamwork in the conversation. And above all, it's where people will build social capital. So if we mix people up in our programs, our average program participant, by the time they were done, when we did some informal interviews, they said they knew 70 to 100 more people that were looking for work than they knew when they came into our program. And you know that if you suffered the pain of dislocation, you want to help other people who are also suffering that pain. So we have employment plans that include nothing about increasing social capital. And that's Mm -hmm. the reason that the hidden job market is where most of the people get hired because social capital is so powerful. And we still keep focusing exclusively on human capital and leave people outside of where hiring is really taking place. So that's how I see it happening. 
That's that's excellent. Yeah, I actually we we talked about this in one of our our live workshops, and I think the number that we found in our research was that uh, people are twenty percent more likely to get hired from a direct referral from somebody that they know than they just walked in off the street, use Monster, Indeed, whatever it is. And so that completely supports your point. And I love that because it, it's what, what you're what you're talking about. I had a mentoring project that was embedded in one of my programs, integrated in one of the programs that I ran, and and it was the same exact thing. It was just people connecting in a social way for them to, you know, leverage what we what we would call leveraging resources, right? And so I love everything that you had to say. Our time, unfortunately, is coming to an end, which uh, we may have to have you back because I got to tell you, this is a very, very, I, I feel like I just want to hang out with you and just listen to you yeah. share all this stuff for the rest of the time. So I, I want to say I appreciate that. But before we go, Larry, there's going to be people that are going to listen to this that want to know what you have coming up. Like, where else can we hear Larry talk? Where else can we get these wisdom nuggets that Larry's dropping on us today. So what do you got coming down the pipeline for yourself and how can people get a hold of you and look at look at what's next? And I've, I've really enjoyed it as well. As I said to Tressa before, workforce development is far too serious. <laughs> One of the things that I love about Aaron and Tressa is that their humor comes through and it really is not just trivial. It really helps us deal with the stress and the challenges of doing this work. So I think that Aaron and Tressa, my career advice to you would be, you could be the first stand-up workforce. <laughs> uh, well, that's right, Tressa. I told yeah. you. Well, I that's good. Yeah. That's just because that's just we're... Hiring you. Yeah, that's um, just because we're a so bunch of clowns, terms, though, Larry. That's <laughs> in terms of in terms of me. My website is www.larryrobin as one word l a r r y r o b b i n dot com, and you see a, you'll see a contact section on the site. You can email me at larry at larryrobin dot com. But the things that I have coming up that people may be interested in. Next Tuesday, I'm doing a webinar for the California Workforce Association called Customer Service Success with Angry and Challenging Customers, How to Get to Win-Win. And it's not only the number of customers we're dealing with, it's that they're angrier. They're Mm -hmm. angry because they can't get their unemployment. They're angry because of COVID. They're angry because the job market is so slim and so much anger pouring onto workforce staff. And I'm going to show people some of the best strategies I've seen in workforce programs, but also how private sector businesses train their salespeople to deal with anger. And we're often inadvertently triggering more anger by what we do. And I don't want to scare anybody, but that can be dangerous if it doesn't, if people don't know how to de-escalate the anger. Next Tuesday. And then in December 8th, we all know that job seekers can be very innovative and very creative, and they get jobs doing things that none of us have ever taught them. So they do these out-of-the-box, what would seem at first glance, crazy things, but it works and it gets them employed. So I've been collecting all those out-of-the-box things we never teach job seekers how to do, and I put them in a webinar I'm going to do on December 8th, non-traditional job search and interview strategies that get people hired. So this is not about using LinkedIn and Facebook. As a matter of fact, there's nothing about social media in this particular webinar. It's all about very creative, out-of-the-box innovative stuff that uh, customers have figured out and that we can use to teach other people. And then I'm doing a couple conferences. I'll be doing the conference of the National Youth 
Employment Coalition and the California Foster Youth Alliance Conference. And if people Google the names of those organizations, they'll find them as well. So uh, that's it for me. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Larry. Again, I think we may have to have you back. I'm looking forward to having, I mean, you're a busy guy. You got a lot on your plate. So that's exciting. Aaron, you want to take us home for the day? Yeah, I I, uh, concur with everything you said. And Larry, we appreciate you and thank you for taking uh, the hour with us. And it's a for sure thing when you're ready and agreeable, we want you to come back. That's a fact. Um, We also look forward to seeing you in person someday um, when we're all hopefully back to what I'll say in my my finger brackets normal or whatever the new normal is. But just the idea that we can spend some time and see each other's pearly whites, that'll be nice the same. But until then, we just want to wish all our listeners uh, safety and health. And we appreciate what each one of you brings to your part of the world. And Larry, again, thank you. And until the next time, 